We want to welcome this congregation on this lovely, beautiful Sabbath day. To everyone that is here today in this assembly, this ecclesia, called out assembly of the Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Germanic, Scandinavian, European peoples who are true Israel in the day that we now live, and they were the Israelites of yesterday and, of course, forever. We want to welcome this congregation here and assembled this morning, and we would like to welcome all the congregation across the United States who may be joining us today. So to all you lovely Israelites who are not with us here physically, but are in the body, scattered all over the United States and across the oceans of the world. We welcome you today, every one of you, and we welcome you here to join us here at the Church of Israel in Western Missouri. We are the church that remains pretty much the way we were in 1950, just like we were in maybe Earlier in the, 90, in the 1940s, we are a congregation that does not believe in interracial mixing, mating, amalgamating, and marriage. We respect and honor all the races God has created, distinctive, separate races that God created from the beginning. We honor God's design, His original design in every race. But since he made us white, we intend to remain white. And we make no apologies for it. We are humbled. And we recognize that not everyone will share our views. We are a congregation that opposed abortion before abortion was legalized. We were a congregation... 85, 88 years ago that, uh, uh, that opposed abortion. We still oppose abortion. We still call it murder. We are a congregation that opposed homosexual behavior in 1950 and before. And thereafter, every year, we have opposed homosexual behavior. We do not believe it's biblical. It's a heinous sin before God, and it remains so and will continue to be a crime that God has cataloged in Scripture. We do not believe in same-sex marriage. Such marriages are not defined in Scripture as marriage at all. God designed marriage for one man, one woman, sharing the same basic ethnic heritage. So we are a church that has remained where we are today. We were the same church in 1950 that we are today, essentially with the same essential moral standards. We, of course, believe in gender distinction, that God created only two genders. May it ever be true. May God's word ever be true. Two genders, male and female, not 51, not 71, not any beyond two, male and female. Each one has their distinctive role. Women were designed to be mothers. They were designed to be the bearer of children. Men were not designed to be mothers. And the idea of chest feeding from a man's body is absurd and it is carrying insanity to its ultimate level. So we're a congregation that remain as we were in 1950 or as we might have been in 1945 or as we were in 1936 when the church was born in Pine Grove, Colorado. So we praise God. Now we're only here today, and this church has been able to survive by the grace of God, the love of God, 
by the prayers of many, many God-fearing, Bible-believing, blood-washed, spirit-filled Christians across the panorama of many decades. And for all those people now, many who have gone on to their reward, we are humbled and grateful that they were standing in the gap in their time of history. Now, over the course of the last 85 or 88 years, there have been many, many, many wonderful people that have survived in this congregation throughout uh, their adult life and right on into the ending of their life. Of course, that's not always true because we live in a world, church, where we're fighting and waging a three, uh, we're, we're waging warfare on three fronts. Everyone gathered here today is called upon to be a soldier. You're fighting against the world. The world is the culture that surrounds us. That culture is ever seeking to devour anyone that is remaining weak in their faith. The culture is like a giant octopus and it'll reach out and grab you and swallow you up. That's the world. The Bible says, love not the world, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. That's the culture. The culture today that we live in is a culture that will devour anyone who is not anchored in Christ and securely anchored to the Word of God and resolved in their heart that they will be Christian no matter what the cost may be. With St. Paul we will say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave his life for me. So that's how you resist the culture. You become anchored in a church. You become anchored in scripture. You become anchored to a foundation of faith, a faith that is strong enough to immunize you, to inoculate you against the world. And that takes a sound, godly, biblical Christian faith to immunize you against this world. Let me tell you, that's true. Now there's another front we fight on. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The Bible tells us in Ephesians, we wrestle against the powers of darkness, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. And referencing back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, a correction, verse 17, 18, and 19, for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now that's the battle within us. That's the sin nature that we have to fight against. When we become a Christian, God does not automatically remove sin nature from us. Do you know when we will be delivered from sin nature? When we are fully delivered and we have a fully redeemed body to match a fully redeemed soul, we will have been delivered from sin nature. So that means that as long as we're in this world, there's a tug of war within us. A war that says, follow the world, follow your own sin nature. But we, re we resist that because sin will take us away from God. Sin obscures God from our life. It robs us of our ability to pray. Sin becomes a veil between you and God. So we have to confess our sins. The Bible says if we will confess our sins, He is able to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
That's one of the things that we do here every week in our morning prayer service. We have a confession. We do. We, we, we have a confession where we acknowledge that, yes, we are sinners saved by grace, by the blood of Christ, but we, res we resist sin. We fight against it. We're not going to be swallowed up into it. So therefore, we watch the eye gate. What comes into your eye vision? We watch the ear gate. What do you listen to? What kind of music do you listen to? Whose voices are you listening to? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, then there's a third front that we wage again. Now, this is a front that a lot of people forget about. But this is a battle that everyone is going to face. No one will escape it. We're going to call it spiritual warfare. You have an enemy. You have an enemy of the world. That's one enemy. That's the culture around you. Another enemy is the enemy of your own sin nature. That's, sin is your enemy. Sin will rob you of your virtue and your Christian walk. So fight against it. But the third battle that we must fight is against Satan and his, and his minions. That's the world of demons, evil spirits that convince you of this, that, and the other. Remember what the Bible tells you in 2 Corinthians 10, 3. For the weapons of our warfare are not what? Not carnal but mighty through God, mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. A stronghold? What is a stronghold? A stronghold is a prison house that Satan will use to imprison anyone who listens to your imaginations, vain imaginations, who listen to negative talk, who harbor and open their hearts and minds up to truth that they know is told them as truth, but is nothing but a lie. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of what? Strongholds. That's a prison. And that prison can lock you up. And Satan is the jailer of that prison. And it's operated by demons and evil spirits that will rob you. They will draw from you every vestige of your faith if you allow it to come into your life. And then it goes on to describe how that happens through vain imaginations and every knowledge, every bit of information that is against the knowledge of God. So we have to fight against spiritual war. We have, to fight, we have to wage spiritual war against Satan and his demons. Now, with that thought in mind, church, I remind you today that we can lose our way by any one of those three battlefronts. That's how we can be lost from the battle. We are Christians and we're fighting a war against the world, sin nature, and the demonic, satanic world about us. Remember what the Apostle Peter said. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. I find it amazing today that we live in a world where growing numbers of people that claim to be biblical-minded people, Christians, don't even believe there is a Satan. God bless them. That's ultimate deception. That's an ultimate walk into deception. You heard it here. You heard it in 1950, 
You heard it in 1940, and I pray you'll hear it till Jesus comes. So, for the benefit of this congregation, the goal is to remain white, but to be Christian. Will do us no good to be white and lose our Christianity. It will, it will be to our sorrow to be white and not Christian. Shame, 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 shame to be in that condition. So it will be our goal to remain a congregation that stands for God's moral laws today, tomorrow, and forever. Let the young people of this congregation resolve in their heart that they will be Christian, biblical Christians, not just playing church, not just professing marshmallow fluff and believing cotton candy theology. So with that introduction, rather lengthy one, we're going to have a Bible study, and it's entitled, Jesus Christ, True God and True Man. Do you know, church, today, as we sit here in these seats, that there is one truth that shines so bright, so high, to such an exalted and noble and majestic position, and it has to do with Jesus Christ, the head of the church, Savior of the body, King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus. What will we do with Jesus? Now the very idea of Jesus Christ being true man and true God separates Christianity from the rest of the religions of the world. You know that. Every religion that you can name denies that God was incarnate in human form. They are seeking man to become a god. In Christianity, God, uncreated God, became a man, perfect man, sinless man, to offer himself for the salvation of his people. So today, beloved, we're going to talk about Jesus Christ, true God and true man, now the idea, the very idea, beloved, that God could step out of eternity. God lives in eternity. God lives outside of time. But God of his own volition, his own divine will, purposed to step out of eternity into time and take upon himself the physical seed of Abraham, to become a savior of his people. Now the idea that God, who would demand a perfect sacrifice for sin, a sacrifice that only he himself could supply, that only God himself could produce, a perfect, sinless sacrifice, and that God himself would become that sacrifice, you don't find that in Hinduism, in Islam, in Judaism. You don't find it in any religion of the world. And Christianity alone stands for the idea that God became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. St. Paul said it probably as beautifully as anyone could have ever said it. And it's, it's worthy of memorization, church. It truly is. I want to see how many know where I'm at. There's a verse in the Bible that says, for without controversy. So that, I love that. Don't you like that? It, there's no controversy about this. We're going to, we're, in this verse, there's, it's, it's, there's no controversy. No conflict. It's just simply true. 
without con for without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, believed on and preached unto the Gentiles, the Israel of the dispersion. Believed on in the world and was received up into glory. And that is 1 Timothy 3.16. It matches John 3.16 as well. So we're talking about the incarnate Christ. Who was God walking in human form as perfect man. Fully man. Perfect God. Fully God. Jesus was not half man, half God. He was altogether fully man, 100% man, fully God as to his divinity. Now that's a mystery. The Bible calls it a mystery. And not everyone will understand that mystery. I certainly don't claim to understand it. And I've been reading the Bible a while. I just don't, it's, it's, a, it's a marvelous story of the incarnate God who lived in Christ Jesus our Savior. Now the amazing thing about the incarnate God that would come to this earth in the seed of Abraham, in the state of a sinless, perfect man, but also fully God, it greets us at the time of the fall, when Adam and Eve fell, and we lost paradise, and we lost a perfect world, a sinless world, vaporized in the face of sin's entry into the world. There is a verse in the Bible, it's called the Proto-Evangelium. That means the first promise of the gospel. And, and for me, now, I only speak for myself, church. To me, the unraveling of the entire Bible, if you imagine every verse of the Bible, you, remind, you remember that the Bible has got 1,189 verse, uh, chapters in it. It's got 31,102 some odd plus or minus words. If every verse in the Bible were a piece of a puzzle and God, and we had all the pieces of that 31,000 verse puzzle dumped out in front of us on a giant table the size of this sanctuary, and God were to say, okay, start putting the pieces together. Do you know that if we looked at the box top, what verse will be on the box top? The most indispensable verse in your Bible to understand. And within its boundary is locked up all the mysteries contained in the Bible. It's like putting a giant puzzle together and you, you think, well, every once in a while you glance at that box top. This is what all the pieces together are going to look like. Well, this is a verse you go to to put the Bible together. And it begins with the promise of the covenant in grace. That God's grace would be un unfolding to a fallen race. That God would choose out of a fallen race of people that he would purpose to save for himself. God made all kinds of, of promises and but he was, he was seeking to please himself. In fact, the Bible tells us in Psalm 115 that our God is in the heavens and he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. You like that verse? I do. Because it tells us, Who art thou, O man, that repliest against God? God can do anything that he wants. We gave us a perfect world. He told us how to keep a perfect world. And we didn't believe him. 
Adam and Eve didn't believe him, apparently, because he warned them that in the day they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely fill in the missing word, die. So death become universal. Death is the sign and the symbol that everyone born of Adam and Eve enters into the world broken. It's called sin nature. And how, what is the vindication that you're broken? You're not going to live forever. But God intended and designed us to live forever. So something happened. And what happened was that sin entered into the world. And at the very foundation of the, of the problem, when sin entered into the world, and we lost that perfect world, God made a promise. God made a promise through the covenant of grace revealed in the Abrahamic covenant of promise. And the promise was, when God spoke to that old serpent called the devil and Satan, underline your Bible, Revelation 12, 9, Revelation 20, verse 2, that identifies that old serpent called the devil and Satan, who was alive and well in the Garden of Eden. He's alive and well in Washington, D.C. today, I guarantee you. His demons are at work. But God made a, God made a promise he faced the serpent in Genesis 3, verse 15, and he said, this is God speaking in Genesis 3, 15, and I will put enmity, enmity. What is enmity? Enmity is hate. It's hostility. It's eternal warfare. It means hatred of the worst kind. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. So the hatred is going to be between the serpent and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed. We got two seed nines now. And as a Christian, you've got to deal with those two seeds. Yes, you can do like most people, ignore them. Or you can tunnel around them. You can assume that they're not in the Bible. Or you can dance around them like most preachers do. Many do, at least. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. And what is the last promise there? It, the woman's seed, will bruise the head of the serpent. And the serpent was to bruise the heel of the woman's seed. That's the story of the Bible. It takes you all the way to the crucifixion of Christ. When the seed line that joined together with Israelites, hear me now, both the wicked and the good seed participated in the crucifixion. There were legitimate Israelites who said, crucify him, crucify him. And if Jesus walked the streets today, there would be good people, ignorant people, non-biblical people, non-Christian people who would say, crucify him. If Jesus stood up and said, I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, there would be people who would say, crucify him. So there were good people, good seed, and there were wicked seed present at the crucifixion. Remember what the promise is. The seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's seed. Now there are two 
singularly outstanding women that play a role in Genesis 3.15. You know the names of these two women, don't you? The first one is Eve. The serpent beguiled that woman, deceived that woman. Does the Bible say that Eve was deceived? Of course it does. Tells us that in 1 Timothy chapter number 2, that the woman was deceived. Was Adam deceived? Did Adam know what had happened to the wonderful celestial clothed virgin woman that he was married to? Of course he did. Why did he choose to walk from a celestial state to a terrestrial state? Because he chose to be with the woman that God put him with. And so who was who carried the greater responsibility for the sin in the garden? It was the man. God judged the man the harshest for that crime. Now, congregation, you don't have to be so quiet. You, you might even oppose me if you choose, but you can be a live audience. You can be a live congregation. So now, here's the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. You need to pencil Romans 16, 20 in your Bible, because there's where St. Paul says, let the serpent's head, talks about the crushing of the, of the head of Satan. When the head is crushed, the body will die. That's a statement and a half. Cut the head off of a snake, the body will die. So, this is called the Evangelium because the virgin Eve, as Irenaeus, second century church father said, the virgin mother Eve untied the knot that Eve tied in Genesis 3. Now that was Irenaeus, second century, who was preaching a lesson from Genesis 3.15. So that's the, that's the beginning of the Genesis of the promise that one day God would bring forth a seed from the womb of a virgin, a virgin woman. Now I want you to share a couple of verses with me in the Bible. If you don't mind, church, if you would be so kind to just simply look at Jeremiah 31, 22 for just a moment, it'll be worth your time. Mark it in your Bible, Jeremiah 31, 22, and I'm gonna read it out of my Bible. I'm in the King James authorized version of the Bible, and I'm reading from Gen uh, Jeremiah 31, and I'm gonna read verse 22. It says, how long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter, speaking of Israel, for the Lord Jehovah hath created a new thing. Now, let's pull the veil from our eyes. God promises here he's going to create a new thing. What's he going to do? What is God going to do? A woman shall compass a man. Now, please do not forget, church, that if I read a little further into this chapter, I would be reading the promise of the new covenant that only Jesus himself could bring to pass. Jeremiah 31 is one of the more important chapters in the Old Testament record. So if you will now turn to, so all we know now is Jeremiah, Jeremiah made a promise that a woman would come as a man. But what did Isaiah promise? Go to Isaiah 7:14. Beautiful statement in Isaiah Chapter number 7, verse 14. So let's take a, a quick look at that one. Beautiful verse. And I'm reading now from, Jer uh, from Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, now incidentally, hold on. Do you know everything that's said before this would not have a clue 
to tell you what God was getting ready to say in, in Isaiah uh, verse 14 of chapter 7. See, the Bible, God has tucked away nuggets of gold, pure gold, in Scripture for us to uh, look at from time to time. So we want to remember that. But in Isaiah 7, 14, the Bible simply says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold a virgin. Beware of new translations who have changed the word virgin to woman. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now wait a minute. Yeah, a virgin can conceive, but not without a man. Here's a virgin that's going to conceive without a man. And shall call his name Emmanuel. What is the meaning of the, of the name Emmanuel? God with us. The promise of the Proto-Evangelium, Genesis 3.15, is like a scarlet thread woven through Scripture. So I read that from Isaiah, but let's go to the next chapter over, chapter 9, and look at something. In chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, and I did some real close research on this verse this week, because I wanted to make sure that, you know, I was on solid ground. So when you look at Isaiah chapter number 9 and verse 6, it says, you need to look at your Bible, boys and girls, please. Open your Bibles, you're in church, and you ought to be looking at the Bible and listening. For unto us a child is born. Now, Unto us a child is born. That's, that's going to be a human child. That's, that's, that's a child to be born naturally through the productive act of, create, of, of creation. For unto us a child is born. But it says, unto us a son is given. Now there's a difference between a child being born and a son given. And the difference is locked up in the mystery of the incarnation of Christ, who is very man, fully man, very God, and fully God. Unto us a child is born. That's Jesus in his manhood from the Virgin Mary. Unto us a son is given. That's the incarnate God, Emmanuel, dwelling in Jesus' human body. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now watch. Don't lose your place. I'm in Isaiah 9, 6. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name. Now watch. His name. The name of the child, the name of the son given will be wonderful. Is wonderful capitalized? Why is it? Come on, why is it capitalized? It says his name will be wonderful, counselor, cap, capitalized C. The mighty God, the everlasting Father. Whoa! Stop, think, look, and listen. The light turned red. So we're at a traffic stop. Why does the Bible say that he is the mighty God, the fully man, who is also fully God, is the mighty God, comma, the capital T for T, signifying a significant, everlasting Father. 
is Father capitalized. We have the triunity of God un being unveiled here, right here before our eyes, church. Yes, he's the everlasting Father. He's the wonderful, the counselor, the mighty God. He is the Prince of Peace. And the promise, now that part of the verse we have seen fulfilled. You and I are the recipients of the fulfillment of this verse because the virgin birth of Jesus, and I'm going to drop over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 1. Luke's Gospel, chapter number 1. And I'm going to read from that marvelous book of Luke. And this is what I'm going to read. I'm going to start in verse number 30, and I'm going to read fast. So please, just for the sake of this discussion, turn in your Bible. Turn your Bible to Luke's Gospel, chapter number 1, verse 30. Thank you. Thank you, boys and girls. Are you with me? I'm in Luke 1, verse 30. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Thank you. Somebody's alive. You found favor with God. Who is the girl's name that found favor with God? Her name is Mary. What's her Old Testament name? Miriam. Thank you. Somebody's really awake. And behold, thou hast... Thou shalt conceive in thy womb. Now, wait a minute. I'm not a doctor by any means, but we have some really, really qualified nurses here today. And I believe if you'll enter into private conversation with them, they will tell you that a woman does not conceive in the womb, typically. The male seed does not, uh, is not going to fertilize an egg in the woman's womb. It's another part of her anatomy. I'm just showing you how technically accurate the Bible is. And bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Whoops. Give unto him the throne of his father's David, father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be what? No end. Thank you. Now we got all kinds of people that came alive. Then said Mary unto the angel, a logical, reasonable, rational question. How shall this be seen? I know not a man. Mary's a young lady who is, she's not, she doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have a boyfriend. And here's an angel telling her she's going to have a child. That would shake most people. It'd surely shake me if I was a young lady. And I'm sure it would any one of the girls that are here this morning. You ask them and see if they wouldn't say that. So what does the Bible say with regard to how incarnate God took, taking on, could take on this human form? Underline verse 35, and the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. Now, I've got to stop here for a moment. Is holy and ghost capitalized? Yes, it is, for a reason. This is the third member of the triune God. His name is the Comforter the spirit of truth. He is the parakletos. He is the third member of the, of the triune nature of God. Fully God. In one eternal God, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each one co-equal, co-eternally sharing the same one essence or the being or the nature that we call God. So the angel said, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee in the power of the highest. Now here's the power of the highest shall over 
shadow thee. Now, remember what Jeremiah said? A new thing will happen. A woman will do what now? Help me. We just read it from Jeremiah 31, 22. Help me. Compass. A woman will compass a man in her womb. The highest, the Holy Ghost shall uh, uh, of the, of the highest shall overshadow thee, therefore that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing, virgin birth, miracle, yes, but with God nothing is impossible. Now, church, you've got to hold on to the idea that God can perform miracles. When God performed a miracle for ancient Israel when, he, when they crossed the Red Sea and swallowed up the army of Pharaoh, that was a pretty good miracle. What about the miracle of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that guided our Israelite forebears for 40 years through the Sinai wilderness? And would you believe that the same God who is a miracle-creating God could create a Shekinah cloud to cover this congregation? Do you believe that same God could show us a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day? Can that God hide us from the powers of those that would like to hurt us? That God can do anything if we only believe. If we only believe. Unbelief is what kept Israel out of the promised land. If you'll only believe. So the Virgin Mary then, Mary said, Behold, don't you just love this young girl who by faith said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be unto me according to thy word. Be unto me. Let it happen. Let it be. And there the Virgin Mary was fulfilling the proto-evangelium of Genesis 3.15, the first hope of the gospel in the promise of the incarnate God in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful and beautiful thing. Now, the truth is, beloved, that Christianity is built on a foundation of the idea that God is one. In the unity of God, He is one being. There's only one God. One God. And in the unity of His being, there exist three subsistences. We call them persons. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now, is this a kind of a mystery? Yes. How many people will live out their life, live out their life in denial of the triune nature of God? Well, in a poll taken by one of the leading Christian ministries of America, 78% of all profess professing Christians in America now deny the Trinity. That means the majority of all the people that claim to be Christian deny the most fundamental truth taught in the Bible. And church, I, I testify to this body today that if you want God's providence, His love and His mercy, His protection upon your life, Wrap your mind around the triune nature of God because it's a fundamental foundational truth that undergirds the Christian faith. And take it away from the Bible, suck it out of the Christian mind, and everything collapses. So hold on to that truth. So when you open your Bible, and the Bible says in the beginning, God created. 
That's Elohim. Capital G, little O and D. That's Elohim. It's a plural unipro, uh, it's, an, a, it's a, a plural noun. It means that it's a plural word. Remember, I, in a previous lesson, any word in the Hebrew that we transliterate into English that ends in I am, like seraphim, Elohim, Elohim, those, that's, a plural, that's a plural word. So it makes perfect sense, beloved, when we come to Genesis 1:26, and God said, God said, that's Elohim, let us make man in our image. Us in our. Who's God talking to? Is God talking? Is he hallucinating? Who's God speaking to? He's speaking to the triunity within his own being. Let us together. And do you know what we can, what we can do, church? Now, we're not going to do it now because we're run, we're run out of time. But we can prove that the Bible that you hold in your lap teaches us that the Father is divine. He's not the Son. He's not the Holy Spirit. We can teach from the Bible that Jesus is divine. He's fully God. But He's not the Father. He's not the Holy Spirit. We can prove from the Bible that the Holy Spirit is God. But he's not the Father and he's not the Son. Remember, there are three, three persons in the Godhead that share a co-equality and they share a co-eternity. Now, why is that so strange to people? When we, being made in the image and after the likeness of God, are triune in our very nature. You're a spirit. And do you know without, if the spirit leaves your body, what happens to your body? Read James chapter 2. Without the spirit, the body will die. The spirit gives you life. But what allows you to function in the intellect, the will, the mind, the affections and emotions, it's your soul. So your spirit and your soul and your what? They live in something called a body, a tabernacle, your triune in nature. So I'm looking at my beloved brother, Ethan Clark. I only see one Ethan Clark there, not three. It's not one plus one plus one equals three gods. That's tritheism. We're not a tritheistic congregation that believe in three gods. Amen? We believe in one eternal, ever-living, self-existing, uncreated God. And in the unity, the unity of His being, there exist three subsistences or persons that are co-eternal, co-eternal, they are co-equal. None is greater, none is lesser than the other. None is more God than the other. None is lesser than God because they are like you. Every part of who you are, your spirit, soul, and body is in a different, is functioning for you in a different way. So I want to share a verse with you, but I could multiply these verses, and I'm going to do it real quickly because we're coming to the end of this, of this lesson. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5. And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. That's not H-O-L-Y, it's W-H-O-L-L-Y. And I pray God, now help, help me, say it, everybody say it with me. If you know it, 
you don't know it, look up 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. I pray God your whole spirit and help me, soul. Now, wait a minute. Do you know that there's a word, a conjunctive part of speech here? What, what is the conjunction? And. Why is that there? Now, I'm not a student of Greek, but I'll tell you what you can do, church. You can go read this in the Greek, and that little word and means that you take note that there is a great distinction drawn by that conjunction between spirit and soul. Soul is not the spirit. Spirit is not the soul. But the spirit is equal to the soul. The soul is equal to the spirit. They are, they work together in unison just like the triunity of God. It's very simple. I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body. But I only see one Ethan Clark. You know, sometimes truth is so simple, a child can see it. But you know, I just told you, 78% of all professing Christians deny what I'm telling you right now. You have oneness Pentecostals who believe that the Holy Spirit's it, a breath, not, not, not a person. You have a whole voluminous number of people that don't believe Jesus is God. You know that. Name me, somebody, name me a denomination that denies the belief in the, the divinity of Christ. Jehovah Witnesses. Do you, know, do you know that a big segment of the whole Christian world denies Jesus is, as God? Church, with all my heart and soul, this congregation is duty-bound to preserve the integrity of the God we love and serve and the God who is going to be our salvation. That's, that is our bounden duty to do. We've got, we've got to be able to defend the deity of Christ as fully God and fully man. We've got to do that. Blameless, preserve your body, soul, and spirit blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Church, I, I have a confession to make. I had a sermon that I prepared. But I didn't get to the sermon today at all. I promise you. I, I can show you my notes. I didn't get to my sermon at all. So I'm going to end. I'm going to end here today where my sermon would have ended if I had stayed on track. So I'll, I'll do this. In the first century of the Christian world, God gave us a body of men called the apostles. God gave his church a body of men called the apostles. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is founded. The church is founded upon the what? The apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 20, 2, 20, chapter 2, verse 20, is a foundation stone. Hold on to your apostolic fathers. Here's what they believed. And it didn't take them 300, almost 400 years to, to find out who Jesus was. No, the apostles before the ending of three quarters of the first century had come to the one conclusion that Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God incarnate. Yes. So we'll end this lesson with the proof of that. And I will go to, let's just do it real, real quickly. Let's go to the apostle Matthew. Matthew was an apostle. What does it record in chapter number 3? Matthew chapter number 3 records the baptism of Jesus. I'm in Matthew 3, 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. He's coming straightway up out of the water. 
the heavens were opened unto him, and the Spirit of God descending upon a dove. All right, the Spirit's descending upon a dove. And you notice that Spirit is capitalized, third member of the triune God, descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Who's that voice? It's not Jesus. He's in the baptismal water. It's not the Holy Spirit. He's the dove. Who's the voice from heaven? God, our Father, all present at the baptism of Jesus. But let's go to the end of Matthew. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, All power is given me in heaven and earth. All power. All power. Who's the head of the world we live in? Jesus. Trust in Jesus. He's going to see you through the fog. He's going to see you through the trials, the Red Sea. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. These are Abrahamic nations. Read Genesis 17. Baptizing them in the name. Now wait a minute. Hold on. Dinner's in the oven. It's getting ready. Table's set. All we need is to put the forks by the plate. And we're ready to go. So hang on. Baptizing them in the name. Is that name singular? Does it say in the names or in the name of? That is singular because we are now going to read of the name of the triune God that said in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Go ye therefore and baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Wow! Doesn't sound to me like we have too much to fear, Joey, as long as we've got a good, strong faith in Christ. So that's what we read in Matthew but I'm going to skip Mark because, not because it's not divine, not divine. Mark is a, a divinely inspired book, but he's not an apostle. So if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go to Luke. I'm going to go to the Gospel of Luke. And my, my, well, okay, excuse me, Luke is not an apostle. He, he's, oh my goodness, I love the Gospel of Luke. It's the longest book in the New Testament. But I'm, I want to look at the foundation of the apostles. So where am I going to go? That only leaves me with one alternative. And I got to run to John. I got to go to John the apostle. Now, wait a minute, church. Do you know that the words of John 1, 1 through 5 are considered to be the prologue of all gospel truth ever delivered from heaven. Let's say it together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was the same in, that was in the beginning. All things were made by Him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And drop down to verse 14. And the word was made flesh. Flesh. Hebrews 2.16 of the seed of Abraham. To become a kinsman redeemer. To save, redeem by the covenant of grace. And fulfill the promise of the Abrahamic covenant in providing a kinsman redeemer for the salvation of his people. That's the redeemer of Israel. 
the Holy One, the God incarnate. Now, I'm ending this lesson to remind everyone here today that if you are a believer in Jehovah or Yahweh, as some people use, all right, there's one true and living God. And we use the, the tetragrammaton name Jehovah because it's a name that appears 7,000 times in the Old Testament scripture. And the 47 translators of the King James Bible looked at all the variants before their eyes, 47 of the finest Bible scholars ever assembled, and they said Jehovah's the name. So I, I'm not going to say that I know more than 47 of the finest Bible scholars that ever walked this earth. So I'm going to humbly go with their, with their decision. Because do you know that in the final ana analysis, folks, do you know that Jesus is Jehovah? That in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Do you know when you say Jesus Christ, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in the unity of the name Jesus now. In him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10. Now we're going to end the lesson there but we really didn't get to our lesson today. Now, church, if you can stand in front of Stockton Lake with a teacup and say, I'm going to drain the lake called Stockton with a teacup, that's where you are with the story of the greatest event in history, God becoming man to become our salvation. Let's stand. Yeah.